five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Right, that was Martha Hoople, Roll Away the Stone. Welcome to another edition of 15 Minutes of Flame. I'm Robert Phoenix. And I apologize for being late today. I was having some technical issues with uh, the old computer. It wasn't, uh, wasn't firing up for some reason. But it's fired up now, and I hope you're fired up. Welcome. It's Monday. And coming off a uh, three-hour show last night over on the other channel on YouTube, the 11th house channel behind me you can see well if you were here watching this you can see if you're listening to this on the stream you can't see it but i'll describe you the background we have jane fonda and david hemmings from the movie barbarella where jane fonda was uh i think she I, that might have been her was that her film debut where she was she at the breakfast at tiffany's before this Right around the same time, this kind of really launches her as kind of, as a as a cult icon in a lot of ways, and she was married to Roger Vidam, who was the uh, director of Barbarella. If I'm not mistaken, they were they were at least in a relationship. I I can't keep up with all these things, but they were together. And uh, look who's here, Scorpion King. Yeah, you were really happy that you uh, that I killed that scorpion last night, weren't you? So I was uh, thinking about sort of the supernatural occurrence last night. The moon was in Scorpio. I killed the scorpion. I don't know if that's good luck. Bad. I, I normal. I don't know if I would take the scorpion and move it outside. I don't know about that. I do that with spiders. Scorpions are they're a different breed. Because now that scorpion cannot be involved in some form of reproduction. And scorpions have a place. I don't really mind scorpions per se. Just not in my house. Not with my cats. Not with my toes. So, anyway. But it was crazy. It was like that weird little patch where everything kind of got very strangely supernatural. The demon cat. The scorpion. Spider. Like a portal opened up. The Scorpio moon. So how is everybody? Are you doing all right today? Rain here a little bit, but not really enough. We can use some more rain. I just feel like the weather's going to get very strange here very soon. Don't you think so, Jasper? Hmm? Yeah, you were great last night, by the way. Great performance on last night's show. Um. So let me go into Chatlandia. Let's see who we've got kicking around here today. 
Thanks again. Thanks for your patience. I do appreciate it. Boy, how about that crowd at that, uh, in that Mata Hoople video? Talk about disinterested. Man. Really disinterested. There I am. Is Rosie over her upset? She's getting there. She's, uh, she's back on the ottoman. I got to take her to the vet. She's, her, her uh, physical condition is, I wouldn't call it optimal. So I got to take her to the vet and have the vet poke around do a blood test. We don't want your friend to experience an early demise, do we, Jasper? There's Kelly B. What's going on, Kelly? Uh, 15 Minutes of Flame. Good to see you, TJ. Thank you for getting the word out. Uh, Sony, what's happening? There's Ryan giving a hearty greeting to the Chatarians. CC Jones, Wendy says, there's Tamara, Scrubbies, Empath. What's going on, Empath? Uh, who else do we have here? Uh, let's see, Beth Berry. Hey, B2, Equicentric. Good day, everybody. Frederick Kagan is married to Kimberly Kagan, the president from the Institute of Study of War. Oh, yeah, we're going to get into the Kaganoviches today a bit more. We're going to look at uh, Jordan Peterson's interview with Fred Kagan, which is very weird. Very, very weird. A lot of love going on in Chattaria today. Let's go to and What's going on? Yeah, you know, I could talk about the Randy Rhodes thing a little bit. It is so fucking weird. That whole thing is so weird. I didn't get into the symbolic aspects of it, but it happens, I think, right at that final degree of Pisces. His, his death, which is very sacrificial. William Hurt, by the way, is born in the final degree of Pisces. We looked that up last night. 29 Pisces. William Hurt has a weird chart. Very weird chart. Not as weird as your chart, Jasper. You have the strangest chart I've ever seen. No, you're good. He's right here. Right next to me. He wants to get right, get right up in the mic. You want to share anything with anybody? Want to say anything? Oh, there you go. All right. So I feel like I'm, I've got little Charlie McCarthy here with a tail. Um, yeah, the Randy Rhodes thing is weird. It happens at the final degree of Pisces, which is very sacrificial, right? That's the, to me, that's the crucifixion degree. The 29th degree of Pisces is the crucifixion degree, which Mark Matheny has. By the way, happy birthday, belated happy birthday, Mark. I should send you a text on Twitter. We should catch up soon. I heard that you left the uh, the shipping business, which is good. I don't know what you're doing now, but we'll find out. Um, yeah, so the whole Randy Rhodes thing, very bizarre. The backstory is that Rhodes, of course, is on tour with Ozzy Osbourne. Now, this is not Black Sabbath. This is Ozzy Osbourne's band. Black Sabbath at that time is touring, by the way. So they're, they're, you know, Ozzy has forked off. I don't think he is with Sharon Levy, whom you would later know as Sharon Osborne, but she's the daughter of, what's his name? I think Phil Arden. 
uh, who is a big English rock and roll impresario, but his last name is Levy, L-E-V-Y. So she was known as Sharon Arden, and then she became Sharon Osborne. So she's had uh, theoretically four last names. Anyway, she the whole thing is very strange. She's on tour. I don't think Ozzy has completely left his first his first wife, although maybe it's in that interzone where that might have happened. So she's on tour on the tour bus. The band is on the tour bus. Of course, there's Ozzy. Then there's various personnel that are associated with the tour, hangers on, all that shit, right? So they're having a, a, a problem with the bus. Here, let's just bring it up here. Uh, let's do this. Here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the Wikipedia description of the plane crash, and then we'll jump into the neocon stuff. So Rhodes played his last show on Thursday, March 18th at the Knoxville Civic Coliseum. Randy Rhodes was uh, this guy who was a uh, pretty, pretty smoking guitar player in terms of his his uh, talent but he was very he was short he's not a big guy but he was able to shred the axe as they say and um was gaining quite a following as this young up-and-coming guitar player i think he played in quiet riot prior to being in ozzy's band so here's the story uh, the next day, so it's 319, the band was heading to a festival in Orlando uh, called Rock Super Bowl 14. Osborne recalls his final conversation with Rhodes that night on the bus involved the guitarist admonishing him over his heavy drinking. The last thing Rhodes said to him was that night was, you'll kill yourself, you know, one of these days. After driving much of the night, they, they're both Sagittarians, by the way, which is interesting. So Randy Rhodes is born on December 6th, 1956 in Santa Monica. So he's a Southern California kid. And um, Ozzy was born on December 3rd, 1948. So they have son-son conjunction in Sagittarius. And Ozzy is clearly a symbol of the byproduct of Sagittarian excess. Um, all right, so let's get back to Randy Rhodes. After driving much of the night, they stopped at Flying Baron Estates in Leesburg, Florida to fix a man malfunctioning air conditioning unit on the bus while Osborne remained asleep. On the property owned by the Calhoun Brothers Tour Bus Company, so I, I guess they're either at the place where they rented the tour bus or they are 
at a place that is a tour bus company, there was an airship, airstrip with small helicopters and planes. So they have a tour bus company, a small airstrip, and it's all there, right? Now, here's where it gets very weird. Without permission, tour bus driver and, pi- and private pilot Andrew Acock took a single-engine Beechcraft F-35 plane registered to a Mike Parton. So this is really weird. How does this guy, and maybe I'm completely oblivious as to how aeronautics works and how, how um, maybe you could just get in and fire these planes up. Maybe he hotwired it. I don't know how he gets in and starts this plane. So he gets this uh, Beechcraft and it's a uh, 57. It's kind of old. I guess some of these airplanes last a while. They're, maintained and taken care of without permission tour bus driver private pilot and private pilot Andrew Acock took a single engine Beechcraft F-35 plane registered to a Mike Parton on the first night Acock took keyboardist Don so they're there for a couple nights on the first night Acock took keyboardist Don Airy that's an interesting name he's taking Don Airy up into the plane and tour manager Jake Duncan with him as passengers. During his first flight, Duncan later revealed that Acock buzzed the bus in an attempt to wake drummer Tommy Aldridge. The group then landed, and a second flight soon took to the air with, oh, it's just the first flight, not the first night, on the first flight, my bad, uh, with Rhodes and makeup artist Rachel Youngblood aboard. Though afraid of flying, Rhodes wanted to take some aerial photos of the countryside for his mother. It's weird. Whatever. Um, he had tried unsuccessfully to coax bassist Rudy Sarzo to join him on the flight. Sarzo chose to get some extra sleep instead. That was his. Well, that was Rudy Sarzo's Waylon Jennings moment. Good choice, Rudy. During the second flight, more attempts were made to buzz the tour bus. Acock succeeded in making two close passes, but botched the third attempt. At about 10 a.m., so now it's the morning. I guess it was I guess it was still the morning when he started to do this. At about 10 a.m., after being in the air for approximately five minutes, one of the plane's in- wings clipped the top of the tour bus, breaking the wing into two parts and sending the plane crashing out of control. So the plane must have been at a 180, right? With the wing dipping down and then clipping the top of the tour bus. And sending the plane spiraling out of control. The initial impact with the bus caused Rhodes and Youngblood's heads to crash through the plane's windshield. The plane then severed the top of a pine tree and crashed into the garage of a nearby mansion. Bursting into flames. Rhodes was killed instantly, as were Acock, 36, and Youngblood, 58. All three bodies were burned beyond recognition. Okay, this is where it gets a little weird, because they're going to do an autopsy, and they're going to find out what's in their system. I don't know how they do this. Uh, and Rhodes was identified by dental records and personal jewelry. According to Sharon Osborne, who was asleep in the bus and awoken by the crash, they were all in bits. 
It was just body parts everywhere. Could you imagine seeing that shit? Not only that, but the smell, because you know that there was probably some degree of like combustion, maybe some fire. <sighs> Keyboarder Son Airy was the only member of the band to witness the crash as the rest were still asleep in the bus. His account, he explained that he was standing. In his account, he explained he was standing beside the bus taking photos that he planned on giving Rhodes later. They have like a like a like a photo club inside of the Blizzard of Oz band, the Rand, the Ozzy Osbourne band, their little photo club, their sugar bugs. I had my telephoto lens and could tell that there was some sort of struggle going on board the plane. So I guess he was looking with his telephoto lens into the plane. The wings were rapidly tipping from side to side. At one point, the plane almost became perpendicular to more than six feet above the ground. That's when I put down my camera and saw the plane right in front of me. I quickly crouched to avoid getting hit and looked over my shoulder and watched it clip the bus, crash into the tree and explode on impact into, into the garage. Wow. Yeah, so they had the smell of charred flesh. As band members on board were all shaken from, from the bunks, must be still a Scorpio moon today, uh, were all shaken from their bunks on impact to try to figure out what happened. Basis Sarzo recalls sidestepping broken glass in his bare feet and looking through the gaping hole to see tour manager Jake Duncan outside rocking back and forth in the ground, screaming, they're gone, they're gone. Drummer Tommy Aldridge took a fire extinguisher from the bus and ran towards the crash site. In a vain attempt to put the fire out, tour manager Duncan, who had been on board the first flight, explained that although he'd been concerned about the pilot's behavior, there was no sense of foreboding. It all seemed so innocent. When we arrived the mor this morning, uh, Andy offered Don and me to take us up. I must admit, it got a bit scary when he started buzzing the bus, trying to wake Tommy up. But after a few attempts, we just landed. That was it. Rose is afraid of flying in young blood, had a bad heart. That's a great combination. Rhodes originally had no intention of getting in the plane, and Duncan explained how the guitarist ended up on the doomed flight. Well, right after Andy came up, right after we landed, Andy came up to me and told me he was going to take Rachel up for, for a ride, and that being aware of her heart condition, he assured me he was just going to take it easy, circle the property a couple times, and not pulling crazy stunts. So when Randy heard that, he decided to join them so he could take some aerial shots with his camera. Though the entire group were quite distraught, the remaining band members were forced to remain in Leesburg for an additional two days until preliminary investigations were completed. Rhodes' brother-in-law flew in from California to Leesburg to identify the guitarist's remains. Um, Ozzy Osbourne's official statement to crash investigators. So it's pretty, pretty white bread there. So I'm going to cut to the chase. This is where it gets weird, really weird. Acock's estranged wife, Wanda, had spent that last night on the bus. And the band were well aware that the driver was attempting to reconcile with her. Witnesses described the driver's state of 
mind as agitated in the hours before the fatal crash. According to witnesses, Wanda emerged from inside the bus shortly after the second flight, took off and was standing in the doorway watching the plane as Acock made his final approach. Um, Don Arden, that's who, uh, not John Arden, Don Arden, that's who uh, Sharon Osbourne's dad is. Uh, just popped in my head. Speculations he may have snapped and made the impulsive decision to kill her by crashing the plane into the bus. So we have the keyboard player looking at what's going on, and there's a struggle happening between Randy Rhodes and the pilot, this guy Acock. So now we add the, the Wanda story. And there's speculation that this guy snapped and was trying to kill his wife and that Randy Rhodes was trying to stop that. So let's continue this a little bit. Uh, Sarzo came to the conclusion that Rhodes' actions in the last seconds of his life prevented a direct hit with the bus, which would have potentially killed the pilot's ex-wife as well as everyone else on board. Ozzy Osbourne later admitted that Acock had been seen doing cocaine all night prior to the crash. It was later confirmed after autopsy that Acock's system had tested. How do you figure that out? Like the guy has just nothing but charred remains. I mean, how, how do they do that? I guess maybe there, there could be some kind of drug trace on a piece of barbecued human flesh. I don't know. To me, it seems a little, I'm not doubting that they can do that, but uh, obviously, it's not my area of expertise. Uh, and that Okay, so here we go. Rose toxicology test revealed only nicotine. The NTSB investigation determined that ACOX aviation medical certificate had expired. And that ACOX had been the pilot in another fatal crash in the United Emirates, Arab Emirates, six years earlier. So this guy, ACOX, was responsible for the death of some other people. Sharon had been aware of that prior crash. So Sharon knew, Sharon Osborne knew that this guy had been involved in a crash and that people had died. And didn't now she doesn't say anything. This is weird, but hadn't informed tour manager Jake Duncan or anyone else of ACOX history in the moments after the crash. She immediately admonished tour manager Duncan for allowing their people into a plane with a pilot who had been awake and using drugs all night, telling him, don't you know that man had already killed one of the Calhoun's kids in a helicopter crash? So I guess they knew these Calhoun people who had this uh, airfield and this uh, tour bus company. So that's who they're referring to is the Calhoun. Um, Calhoun brothers. So he killed one of their kids. But Sharon, the weird thing about Sharon is that she doesn't tell the tour manager. But then after the crash hap happens, she blames the tour manager. Well, Sharon, that's kind of on you. You never told him. 
He didn't know. Rhodes' funeral was held at the First Lutheran Church in Burbank, California, serving as pallbearers at the funeral of Osborne, Aldridge, Sarzo, and Rhodes's former man, former choir riot bandmate, Kevin Dubrow, or Dubrow. Uh, on his coffin were flowers and two photos of the guitarist, one showing himself in Osborne on stage in San Francisco. Rhodes was buried at Mountain View Cemetery in San Bernardino, California. On his tomb is the inscription, an inspiration for all young people. I guess you could go visit Randy Rhodes' tomb in San Bernardino. I think uh, maybe some people might make a pilgrimage to that. I bet, I bet they do. They go see Randy Rhodes. There's a whole website called Find a Grave, called findagrave.com. Anyway, um, the whole thing's bizarre. And it all happens at the end of Pisces, this very kind of, you know, sacrificial sign. And these, these accidents, you know, I was, I was thinking about, well, before the show started, I was reading about uh, the fire on Apollo 1 with Gus Grissom and Ed White and Chaffee, which is, again, pretty gruesome when you think about it, that the entire Apollo 1 capsule just burst into flames. And again, you know, they were in there. Um, and I was reading this back and forth on how some people think that it was sabotaged. But why would they sabotage that flight if uh, Gus Grissom, who was very outspoken, and he was outspoken about the safety protocols around Apollo 1, like why would they sabotage something that he was outspoken about? Does, so, so for some people, it doesn't make sense. And that there's, there was a, a conspiracy about the fire aboard Apollo 1. And that what it does is it sets up ultimately Neil Armstrong to become the guy who theoretically walks on the moon. And there are people who work at NASA or have connections with NASA that say that they actually went to the moon and have your quote unquote deep knowledge about the whole thing. I don't, I don't think they did. I think they, they may have gone to the moon, but not with that production. That was a production we saw. But that said, even if it was a byproduct of too much, too much oxygen inside of the uh, lunar module, and apparently there was a bunch of Velcro, everything was connected by Velcro on the inside. And <clears throat> Velcro supposedly can, is very combustible. So even with all those things taken into account, and the door, by the way, opened inside versus out on Apollo 11. And because of the pressure and the heat of the fire, it was expanding, right? The walls of Apollo 1. So when that happens, you can't have the door open from the inside. Swing in, right? 
And this was a design that was put into place by Werner von Braun. The door had to swing open in case of fire, and that didn't happen. So they were trapped inside this. So I read this back and forth on this website. People were, one guy was saying, well, I worked for the program, and I can tell you this happened, this happened, this happened. There was no conspiracy. And there were other people that were trying to get him to, uh, you know, admit that maybe he wasn't informed about the whole. So it's interesting, right? It's interesting to have these two competing point of views. But I look at that, and then I look at what happened with Randy Rhodes, and there's almost something supernatural about these events, and that it may not be theoretically conspiratorial, but there is a strange supernatural element. Now, Ozzy Osbourne, even though he's later found in a church uh, crying and praying, he's talking about Rudy Sarzo about Randy Rhodes, Black Sabbath was into some very dark shit. I mean, that's how they got their name. Was it the Satanic Bible or the Necron or Micron or whatever that they were messing around with? It was it Tony Iommi, I think, that was messing around with it and they summoned you know, this, this, this being, this entity, and that's how they got their name. And then they just kind of went into this very dark place. So there's a very, very dark energy. Ne Hello, Neptune and Scorpio is what I was talking about last night with my generation. That was the first record I ever bought, by the way, was Paranoid by Black Sabbath. My first full album that I bought. And I bought it from a, a transvestite who owned a, a record store called Underground Records in San Jose. It always used to creep me out whenever I'd go there. I've told the story before. It was like this, it was the first transvestite I'd ever seen. It was like, was it was older dude, gray hair. I mean, you have, in some ways you have to kind of admire the guy because he, number one, he's not a very appealing looking transvestite. Number two, he's older and he didn't dye his hair. So that was something you had to respect that. You know, he always had this attitude, a weird attitude. Anyway, um, yeah, that was my first record. was Paranoid Black. So when you look at these events, like even with Ayrton Senna, which I was talking about last night on the show, in his uh, death in San Marino, the last death, by the way, um, in a Formula One race, you look at some of these deaths, and, and even with Buddy Holly in the plane crash, which happens just outside of Mason, Iowa, which is really weird. I always thought that was strange. Like, why Mason, Iowa? Like, there's something very bizarre about these deaths. And, and, and they may not have been planned occult operations. But it appears as if there's some hidden hand behind what, what takes place. Like, whatever happened with ACOC, the pilot, with the, the, the Coke run that he's doing and his animus towards his ex-wife and staying up, right? All of this is contributing to what I would call a very fluid, subtle body, which means that he's open to some form of possession. 
And that's where the supernatural element to one degree can come into play. Now, that's not going to happen with Ayrton Senna. And it's not because Ayrton Senna was not like that. But in this instance, I think you might be able to make a case for Acock and him being possessed by something other than himself when he sees his ex-wife. It's like, or a strange wife. I guess they were still married. And he's like, you know, I'm going to tour, tour, tour that bitch. And then you have Randy Rhodes on board. If this story is true, who is struggling with him to not do that. And then, and yet, I mean, it's heroic if that's true. And Rhodes is almost like their angel. So you have this battle in the sky. It's a very interesting metaphor, right? You have this battle between these two beings in the sky. And one is supposedly a dark angel and the other is a, a, a lighter angel, right? Aerie or Acock rather is possessed by this dark angel and Rhodes is fighting him in order to save the lives of these people, even though he probably doesn't necessarily know that, although he might, but again, it feels, it feels supernatural. Like there are the, there sometimes the, the supernatural hand is behind events and who knows what, you know, leads up to that, how that is conspired in some ways. So even though it doesn't look like it's some kind of conspiracy or some kind of thing other than uh, too much oxygen in the, in the cabin of Apollo 17 or Apollo one rather 17% oxygen, too much oxygen, by the way, they've been admonished for having too much. I think it was Honeywell. Was it Honeywell that was doing that stuff? They'd been admonished by Honeywell is it being too oxygen rich, oxygen rich inside of there. Um, inside of a small space like that. So yeah, I think sometimes these things happen. Like the Senate thing is very bizarre. Happening on May Day. And even the relationship with Renault Williams uh, and Formula One, it's all just very bizarre with Senna. Really strange. It's like, how does that happen? How does that happen with his steering column? Just busting off like that. Is he's like, in, I think he was in first place. It was him and Michael Schumacher. And what's very interesting about what happens there is that Michael Schumacher eventually, he winds up literally becoming the new Senna on Formula One. And it's that race where literally and figuratively Schumacher overtakes him, right? It's like the torch has passed in some ways. Weird. Anyway, um, of course, Ozzy Osbourne will move on from that fatal crash of Randy Rhodes and uh, Acock and the uh, makeup artist. And he would go on to fame and fortune. He, he, Ozzy Osbourne has been incredibly successful. Damaged goods, but successful. And due in part to uh, the 
strong arm of one Sharon Osborne, who eventually lands him as he exits his relationship with his wife. And then I guess Sharon helps him get off drugs, but gets him on other drugs and gets him on all these, you know, medical drugs, pharmaceuticals. Anyway, let's move on and let's talk about the neocons. Won't you roll away the stone? Uh, let's see. There's something I wanted to bring up here. So I found this. Um, let's let's get into this a little bit. And then we're going to get into this uh, interview. And this is a instant. This is a very interesting story. And it was printed on June 4th, 2019 by Christian Alejandro Gonzalez. And it's called The New Neocons. And it's on a website called Intercollegiate Studies. Intercollegiate hyphen review, The New Neocons. So this talks about what I've talked about. And here we go. These are the ideological inheritors of the neocons. Here we go. There's Dave Rubin, whom I don't like, by the way. In the 1960s and 70s, a group of disillusioned progressive intellectuals began to move slowly right. Now, when I was on with Giuseppe and Dave on Friday, I talked about this idea that there is this normal migration to more conservative ideas once you accumulate money, power, and resources, that you want to protect them. Like once you have something, right, you want to conserve the ability or, or you want to protect and conserve the ability of the outside world to come in and take that thing from you. So I think part of the reason why the conservatives, neoconservatives, go from the left to the right is number one, they want to preserve the world that they had built, their wealth, their intellectual power. And that includes things like theoretically smaller government, theoretically. Um, less, for sure, um, less programs, entitlements. They don't want that. They don't want that. So they will begin to uh, foment and then forward these more conservative ideas. And at the same time, they're seeing where the power is going. And this is an important part. The power is moving from the left to the right because the, the, the late 60s is an utter failure for the left. It's an utter failure for the Democratic Party. And they know this. They see the social failure. Um, and they do have, like, if you listen to that interview with Midge Dector and, and Podhoritz or Potteritz, however you say his name, I think it's Potteritz. Um, they have distinctly conservative ideas about how to raise their children. 
And one of the ideas that they had, which they did not agree with, with the neoliberals, is busing. They were not behind busing because they didn't want their kids going to schools that were going to be, quote, unquote, integrated. Now, for these people, they wouldn't have to worry about that because their kids would go to some Jewish day school or something like that. They would. They would would not be going to a public school. They wouldn't allow their kids to go to a public school. But they would see this as a social issue, and they would think about their kids in a public school, and they would say, well, we don't want them there. So they would they they would come out and after these conservative um, flashpoints, but the, what they're really seeing is this this shift to power. So it's this shift to power from the failed left, and it's also the accrual of capital, financial capital, and they want to preserve that and conserve that. So all these things are molding their conservative mindset to move from their Bolshevik roots because they come out of, no matter what Fred Kagan says, I'm going to get into the Fred Kagan interview, they come out of Bolshevism. All right, so let's go here. Okay, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Nathan Glazer, Irving Crystal, Norman Potter, let's name a few. You forgot Robert Kagan. Started feeling disgusted at the activities of the radical left. Two leftist commitments were particularly offensive them. One was the anti-Americanism, that accompanied protests against the Vietnam War, as well as the attendant anti-communism that such anti-Americanism frequently entailed. The second was the left-wing assault on academia, often committed in the name of minority populations. So they didn't like that. And I, and I think what's weird about the neocons is I think that they are inherently racist. Now, they may be moved and motivated by Ayn Rand. And this idea that you should be able to um, practice free speech, especially on college campuses, where they could probably see that students were being molded into a more neoliberal and progressive um, identity in body politic. But do they really want to limit that or do they want to be able to promote their ideas and their agenda, and then get inside those kids' heads, right? So it's a little unclear here, and they are anti-communist. They don't, they don't really like the fact that the United States is soft. with con- Everything about the neocons is strident. And again, you know, bring up um, John Goodman's character in The Big Lebowski, Walter Sobchak who's um, based on John Milius, who's not even Jewish in the movie. I mean, John Goodman's not even Jewish. In, I mean, his character, Walter Sobchak, is not Jewish. But he pretends to be Jewish. And he's nuts. He's absolutely Maybe I'll play a Walter clip before we go. Okay. Left activism visited all sorts of disturbances on, upon universities in the 1960s. Student revolts sometimes turned uh, into these confrontations with presidents and administrators. Protesters managed to occupy Tucker over various campuses. I've talked about this before. That was this idea that they wanted to kill the father. That's Pluto and Leo, and they wanted to kill the father. 
and the father was the provost or the dean, whatever title they had. They wanted to kill the dean. Eventually, they, they, they found their target, and they killed Nixon. They killed the political career of Nixon. Nixon is a Capricorn, which make, makes him a goat. And he is the sacrificial goat of the Pluto and Leo generation. They got what they wanted for. Uh, they got what they wanted. All this uh, ferment bred opposition, not just from self-styled conservatives who predictably opposed the chaos in the name of order, but also for, from some progressives, as George Nash writes in the conservative intellectual mood in America since 1945, as campus after campus exploded, the need for order, restraint, and standards of excellence seemed ever more apparent to at least a segment of the academic community. Universities were under radical attack. Professors were forced to choose some suddenly found themselves in a conservative situation. That is not to say, of course, that the defense of elementary order, academic freedom, professional standards, and open university ensure human act civility were in any sense the exclusive concern of conservatives. Nevertheless, the very act of protecting these values had a profoundly conservatizing effect on many progressive intellectuals. So what they're trying to do, again, is they're progressive intellectuals and they're, look at, they're looking at their institution being under attack which means that, you know, they could not allow themselves some freedom of thought. And so they're looking at, well, okay, I've, I've, got, to, I've got to conserve and protect my intellectual turf. And it's also that there would be possibly this competition for ideas. There's left and then there's radically left or there's, there's um, progressive and intellectual, and then there's radically progressive intellectual. Although certain members of the profession that found themselves in agreement with the right, they did not immediately join the right. Many of them felt rather uncomfortable agreeing with conservative intellectuals for much of the 60s. Norman Potteritz and other writers associated with Commentary Magazine insisted that they were the true progressives and that the campus radical left was a grotesque aberration from an otherwise honorable tradition. Despite the discomfort of Potterists at all the onslaughts of left activism compelled these thinkers to come to the defense of America's liberal democratic order, which is partly why they eventually came to be called the neoconservatives. Little by little, they began to refute the contentions of the far left. The social scientists among them, Moynihan, Glazer, et cetera, argued that African-Americans were held back not exclusively by racism, but also by internal cultural factors that state interventions in the economy were not capable of easily resolving. I don't think there's any, um, I don't think there's any holes in that point of view, by the way. The staunch anti-communists among them contended that although capitalism may not be perfect, it is certainly superior to communism as the only the former system has in fact generated prosperity and freedom in short, their newfound appreciation for America's positive characteristics led them to take up the conservative-ish positions. So again, they're looking at, hey man, we're getting we're getting some of this. We're getting something good out of this. Why don't why don't we preserve these values? That's exactly what I was talking about. The move to the right among progressive intellectuals opened up some ground for an alliance with elements of the traditional center-right, the neoconservatives and the establishment conservatives of such magazines as National Review did not agree on everything, at least in the 1960s and 70s. But 
But they agreed on much, the basic virtue of capitalism, the necessity of order, and the norms of civility, and above all, the pathological nature of the radical left. They will not agree on certain religious principles and values. Because the neoconservatives, by and large, are not Christians. I'm not even going to use the word Judeo-Christian. All of which brings me to the intellectual dark web today and the parallels between it and neoconservatism. In all the trends mentioned above, the reaction against left activism, the initial reluctance to fully embrace the right, the defense of standards, the discovery of conservatism's worth, the IDW resembles its neoconservative predecessor. Of course it does. There has been much debate about how exactly the IDW's political position should be characterized. By and large, the IDW's critics tend to paint the IDW as a movement of the right or even the far right. But even within the IDW itself, there is dissension. Yuri Harris of Quillette, the IDW's flagship publication, has suggested that figures associated with the IDW are united primarily by their opposition to today's uh, most prominent radical left movement, namely the social justice movement. Harris's argument, however, met with fierce backlash from several IDW members, many of whom insisted, much like Norman Potteritz before them, that they are not conservatives in any real sense. Harris's critics pointed out that with the exception of Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, most IDW members support abortion rights, gay marriage, drug legalization, economic measures to combat income inequality, and other policies not associated uh, typically not, associ not typically associated with conservatism. Hence, they concluded, the IDW is politically diverse and unified primarily by support for free and open inquiry. Quillette editor Claire Lehman seems to sympathize with Harris's critics. She does not see the IDW as a manifestation of right-wing politics. For example, she has written that the relevant distinction today in intellectual circles is not one of left versus right, but liberty versus authority. And many people, no doubt, would agree with her. I cannot help but notice that those who insist on some key matter is not an argument of right versus left, but something else tend to be moderate progressives finding themselves aghast at agreeing with. One considers the dynamics of what is occurring among intellectuals. However, Lehman's objection and that of Harris's critics simply will not do. Harris's contention that the IDW is united by opposition to the social justice left is basically incorrect, is basically correct. Yes, it is true that many IDW figures back some center-left policies, but among intellectuals, those that are not, those are not the most salient issues of our time. An aggressive left has expanded its influence in the universities and over culture at large. The issues on its agenda, identity, oppression, social justice, etc., have largely become the dividing line among intellectuals. Just about every IDW figure voices vehement opposition to the views of the social justice left. One thinks here of Steven Pinker, Glenn Lurie, John McWhorter, Christina Hoff Summers, Dave Rubin, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, and Douglas Murray. While there may be a wide divergence of views among these thinkers on a variety of issues, not a single one of them can be described as sympathetic to let alone supportive of the social justice left. For the IDW to count as politically diverse, it would have to begin including people who take the far left position 
on the issues of the day. In other words, it would have to include in its ranks intersectional feminists, post-colonial theorists, and so on. Such a development is not even conceivable. A far-left feminist such as Kimberly Crenshaw would never share a platform with an IDW or declare herself a proud supporter of the movement. Even Camille Paglia, who describes herself as a left-leaning feminist, is perhaps the closest thing the IDW has to a radical feminist, loathes the social justice movement. The reason why a social justice leftist could not be part of the IDW reveals much about the subtle processes by which diverse IDW figures were pushed together in the first place. The social justice left is, in the view of its opponents, advancing a revolutionary challenge to many of the pillars of Western ideology. Capitalism, the Enlightenment, objectivity, rationality, political liberalism, color blindness, individualism, and more. Even if the IDW's members are not traditionally conservative, this revolutionary challenge has led them to a certain kind of conservatism, at least insofar as defending the basic ideological institutional features of one's societal inheritance is conservative, which under reasonable assumptions it is. Thus, in the face of the social justice critique, a Burkean sensibility has come online in much of the IDW, a sensibility that stands up for the things one cherishes or takes for granted. This is what the original neoconservatives did, by the way. That's how they moved to the right. This, and it was, the, in some ways, it was the same inflammatory catalyst that pushed them to the right, that pushes people like Dave Rubin and uh, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and the, the Weinstein brothers at Al, uh, Barry, what's her name? You know, all, they push them all to the right. Um, okay, so let's keep reading here. Against the social justice intensity of criticized Western institutions for their white supremacist or patriarchal undertones. The IDW cries out of order, out for order, dialogue standards, the value of one's inheritance for a classical liberal type of conservatism, in a phrase. The revolutionary, the revolutionary challenge of the social justice left, moreover, has pushed many IDWs, IDWers toward some very conventionally conservative positions. Indeed, as can be discerned from some of the essays on Colette, Colette has published, to generally warm reception from its readers, how else can one describe the following pieces, if not conservative? The French genocide has been airbrushed from history. A scathing critique of the French Revolution, the Bolivarian God that failed, a similarly scathing critique of the Venezuelan Revolution, the clear case for capitalism, what its title implies, the high price of state grievances, an attack on the radically progressive thought of uh, Ta Nehesi Coates, and the list goes on. Support for capitalism, revulsion at revolutionary violence, dissent from racial progressivism, none of this stuff would have been out of place at the National Review. Nor am I nitpicking one might find articles at Colette that part with some traditionally conservative positions, but one will be hard pressed to find endorsements of revolution or critiques of political liberalism or praise for the notion of structural oppression in all that is related to. I submit then that the counter-revolutionary impulse is at work in the IDW. As with the initial phase of the neoconservatives, many figures in the IDW currently feel uncomfortable in their new intellectual surroundings. They have not forged deep ties with the institutional right. 
They have not allied themselves with right-wing political parties. They still get upset at those who call them conservatives. And so I offer my apologies in advance for doing this precise, for doing precisely that. They diverge from traditional conservatives on some issues, but not on the most salient ones. And yet, despite that, all that, they are the new neoconservatives. And their protestations to the contrary cannot obfuscate what is happening. If history is any indication, the links between the IDW and the more established right are likely to strengthen in the coming years for better or worse, or indeed for better and worse. So it's an interesting article here. And it points to the, the, uh, uh, the, the intellectual dark web as the cultural inheritors of neoconservatism, which I've talked about. And I'm sure that if you drill down and you know, really ask what Dave Rubin thought about the war in Ukraine and Russia and Putin, if you really pinned him to the mat, he would be for it, just like Ben Shapiro would be. So this is a good segue to look at the interview between Frederick Kagan and Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, of course, being a member of the intellectual dark web and being a Russian historian, Jordan Peterson has a Russian fetish. He has a bunch of uh, communist revolutionary art in his office around his home. His daughter uh, married a Russian. She got divorced. He had to go to Russia to get off these, I think they're benzos that he was on. And he was so deeply addicted to the benzos and some other things, if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't just one drug. But they wanted to get him off cold turkey. And there was a treatment in Russia where they would put him into a medically induced coma. So they could, um, he could essentially be weaned off these things while he was out of it. And then they could, I guess, replace his um, benzo addicted blood with better blood during this medically induced coma phase. And he comes out of it and he's got to relearn a bunch of shit. You know, there's that weird period where, where he's not really fully back in his mind or his body. In this interview, he seems to be very together and with it and asks, he actually asks Fred Kagan good questions. They're just the wrong questions. So here we have this interface now between the neoconservatives and the intellectual dark web. And it has to do with the subject of Ukraine. So I'm going to play a little bit of this and I'm going to move forward in a couple of places in the interview so that you can see how Fred Kagan is promoting this, this war. And this is what he's doing. He's promoting this war as a way to end this um, return to a Russian hegemony, which he claims is part of this idea of Russia being separate from the West, which is true, by the way. And they've always been semi-separate from the West, with the exception of the Romanovs, who were actually German, at least the uh, um, Alexandra was German. I'm not sure if Nicholas was, but Alexandra was. She's connected, I think, to the Hanovers. Anyway, let's get into this interview a little bit. And uh, I may play another part of it tomorrow. 
and they just jump right into this thing. So I guess he has a new book. Jordan's got a new book out. Let's see. Here we go. All right. So this was uh, from uh, February 28th, so a little less than a month ago. And uh, let's hear, you know what, I'm, I'm going to put my earphones on because my speakers are kind of trash. This computer. Let me do this. Oh, so he's got an update. I haven't seen the update. I gotta watch the update. Maybe we'll bring the update in tomorrow. Okay, here we go. Accepted the Soviet theory. Hold on. That Start from the beginning. But now we need to talk about Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin who was a KGB, a mid-ranked KGB thug who claims never really to have believed in the communist claptrap that he was putting out, which, is, which wouldn't make him unique among the Soviet apparatchiki, um, but who nevertheless- So again, this is Frederick Kagan, uh, the son of Robert Kagan and part of the uh, neocon Trinity, the Kagans, the Potteritzes, and the Crystals. And he met his wife, Kimberly, in his father's class, I believe at, was it, was it Yale? So he marries uh, Kimberly, and together they, they fund, they, well, they found and get funded the Institute for the Study of War. And these are the two people, him and his wife, who will move very swiftly to become part of control command in Iraq with David Petraeus. And get an unusually high security clearance. And these are two people who are advising on military strategy who have never served in the military. They've never killed anybody or watch anybody die. So it's easy for them to order 40,000 troops into Kandahar or you know some place where uh, you know they need to go in amongst the, the the local populace and get information and pretend like they're their friends and make bridges and, and bring you know cans of, I don't know, spam or something, right? They probably need spam because they're, 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 they're Muslims. Uh, can, you know, cans of roast beef or whatever. We're, we're going to bring little trinkets to the natives. We're going to gain their confidence. Um, Stan McChrystal, part of his strategy was to not only be a part of some kind of 
insurgents attack and defense, but also to go in and build these communities. That was part of his idea. And eventually he gets kicked out. And then the Kagans come in and they're the ones that begin to take this stuff over. And they have no problem saying, well, we got to put 5,000 troops in this area and we got to go get this group when we're intercepting all their communications. So theoretically, but they don't even speak Farsi. They don't speak any Arabic at all, but they've studied a lot of Russian history. And he sounds very erudite when he, when he starts to speak, speak about uh, Vladimir Putin, Vladimir Ilyich Putin. He gives it that little, hey, look, I've studied Russia and Russian, little inflection in his voice, makes him sound very academic and authoritarian. So this is that guy. And now he's, now he's again, his brother, his brother, so his brother is Robert, father's Donald, is that Donald Kagan? Donald Kagan's father, Robert's his brother. I get them mixed up. So his father is Donald Kagan, his brother is Robert. His brother is married to Vicki Newland, Victoria Noodleman, and they, uh, as Dave Scorpio pointed out on Friday, are likely descended from the Kaganovich family. And this guy, Kaganovich, was Stalin's right-hand man and, for all intents and purposes, responsible for the whole Maduro. So these, this is the group that these people are descended from. And they go back into that area so that they can reclaim it. They're reconquistas for their, for their homeland. And Kagan is pushing this war. And now he's, he's reaching into, he's making this connection between the neoconservatives and the intellectual dark, dark web or the alt-right. So now they're building this bridge between these two groups so that theoretically the intellectual dark web can sell their ideas and their ideology to people who think that they're aberrant. All right, let's keep going. Obviously imbibed a sense of Soviet patriotism and some kind of belief in aspects of that ideology and has certainly accepted the Soviet theory that the West, that the world is out to get Russia and accepted that paranoiac doctrine. Because I mean, as you, as you know, Jordan, <laughs> ideologies are large, sprawling and complex. People can believe in parts of them while rejecting mm. other parts of them. I'd, I'm willing to believe that Putin was never a committed communist per se, but it is apparent that Putin accepted the special destiny of the Soviet Union or Russia in the world to be a superpower and to have influence beyond the norm and accepted that the world was hostile and was seeking to prevent the Soviet Union or Russia from having that role. Hello, everyone. I'm pleased to have with me today Dr. Frederick W. Kagan. I reached out to some of my contacts uh, who have some intellectual credibility and some political expertise to find out who could be contacted to provide an update for everyone, me included, on 
the unfolding situation in Russia and Ukraine, and Dr. Frederick Kagan, his name popped up instantly. So I'll give you a bit of a bio, and then we'll get right to the issue, what's happening in the Ukraine. Dr. Frederick W. Kagan is author of the 2007 report, Choosing Victory, a plan for success in Iraq. He's one of the intellectual architects of the surge strategy in Iraq. He's the director of the American Enterprise Institute's Critical Threats Project and a former professor of military history at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. His books range from Lessons for a Long War, American Enterprise Institute Press 2010, co-authored with Thomas Donnelly, to The End of the Old Order, Napoleon in Europe, 1805, 1801 to 1805, DeCapo Press, 2006. He worked as an assistant professor of military history at West Point from 95 to 2001, and as an associate professor of military history from 2001 to 2005. Dr. Kagan holds a PhD in Russian and Soviet military history from Yale. So welcome. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me today. I very much appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this insofar as you can look forward to a discussion about such topics. And so we'll get right to the heart of the matter, I guess, uh, in the most pointed manner possible. Maybe you could give us some sense of, of what's happening right now, and then we'll move to why and what we should do about it. And But as far as you're concerned, how should we be understanding the events that are unfolding in Ukraine? So um, several days ago, I've, I confess I've lost all track of, of time. Um, but several days ago, uh, Vladimir, Russian President Vladimir Putin launched an unprovoked and unjustified and illegal attack on Ukraine uh, for the purpose of conquering it. So he's already selling it, right? He's already selling the fact that it's unprovoked, unjustified, and uh, illegal. Like, what the fuck do you think you did in Iraq? He's accusing Putin of the exact same thing that him and his brother and his sister-in-law and his wife were all in the process of advocating for. He essentially, what the neocons did in Iraq is the same thing that Putin is doing theoretically in Ukraine. There's no difference. No difference whatsoever. So right off the bat, he is being intellectually dishonest. Because he can't own up to the fact that what they did was in the service of some form of protection, conservatorship of America and its values. And he talks about Putin as being paranoid. These people, the most fucking paranoid group, they see this, they see a threat to American hegemony, which they had now identified as their own hegemony through the embrace of certain values and the hijacking of the military industrial complex. So they're as equally paranoid as Putin. We'll put a little more of this. Um, he has conducted air and missile strikes against multiple, multiple targets across the entire country. Like, is that something we didn't do at some point? Let's get to Peterson here. 
because it's a geographical area, but you also highlighted the importance of a of a uh, a shift in governance in Ukraine away from a pro Western governance structure. And so, how how much of this should we assume is territorial in some sense, and how much of it is his his desire to create a subordinate state? Is it a, a state subordinate to him, or is it more important to him, do you think, that it's not pro-Western? His objective is very explicitly to change the political order in Ukraine. It's not about territorial conquest per se. Uh, it All right, so Peterson, whatever I think of Jordan Peterson, I, I will always acknowledge his intellectual power, even after he went through this you know, thing in Russia with having to get put into a medically induced coma. He did not have his fastball for a while. Jordan Peterson is a bright guy and he asks very relevant questions. He just asked, he asked smart questions. They're just the wrong questions. So it's, it's actually a pretty good question. Let's get back to another Peterson question here. But he says he wants to change the, but why wouldn't, why wouldn't Putin want to change that? Because, because that was the government that was set up by his brother and his sister-in-law. So he is there to defend what they did, their great work and their desire and goal to retake Ukraine. Because that's where they're from. They're from their region, Ukraine, Lithuania, all the neocons are from that area. And they want it back. And they saw that the Soviets had come in and, and what's weird, though, is that they backed the fucking Soviets. Like the, the, they were Bolsheviks. You go, if you went into, if I went into like Potteritz's um, Wikipedia page, you would see that he is a died in the wool Bolshevik at a certain point. Then he moves. So they were responsible for the damn thing. That's what they do. They do these regime changes. It's about, ending Ukraine's uh, ambitions to join, to be part of the West to begin with. Uh, but he has written lengthy articles and he has given lengthy speeches um, explaining that he thinks that Ukraine has no right to exist as an independent state, uh, that it has no- I just noticed he's wearing digital camo. I just noticed that. He's got a war fantasy. He's got, he's got like war fantasies. I wonder if him and Kim Kagan like dress up as GI Joe and GI Jane, throw some camo on and roll around a bunch of uh, dead grenades or some shit like that. No nationhood, uh, that it is simply a natural part of Russia that was reft from Russia uh, by the stupid Soviets and then by what, he, you know, the, what he has called the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century, which was the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's, it's, it's apparent from everything that he says that his ultimate objective is to regain uh, full control over Ukraine in some way. Um, the exact way in which he would govern a reconquered Ukraine is not yet clear, but that he would, in, that he is insisting that it be in Russia's sphere of influence under Russia's control is not is not in question.
So let, let's talk, let's ask about the, this idea of the Russian sphere of influence, because one of the things that puzzles me in some sense is why isn't Russia, why doesn't Russia conceptualize itself as part of the West? Like, why is Russia, why does Russia insist upon viewing itself as an entity independent of the West, especially given the fact that it isn't exactly obvious that Putin is an admirer of what happened under Lenin and Stalin in the Soviet Union. And so I don't understand why he, why we have to have this notion that it's Russia against the West. It's why he doesn't trust the West. We don't trust him. Like, look, well, look at Kagan. Exactly. He's it smiling. from the, the faith itself. It, but I, I well, don't have I don't, any more. I'm, I am, I'm going, I'm about to reach the limit of, of expertise that I'm coming polity in the same way there was, especially in Northern Europe. And I can't, I, I can't really understand why that is. It doesn't seem to be a doctrinal issue exactly that stems from the, the faith itself. So what Peterson is talking about here is he doesn't understand why there is a disconnect between Russia with the Orthodox Church. Like the Orthodox Church theoretically connects it to the West more because of its relationship with Christianity. But Kagan points out that the Orthodox Church in Russia sees itself as something very distinct and different than the uh, the church in, say, the Vatican City. Right. That's a very it's a very different like they. So when Con when there was Constantinople, they relocated the Vatican or at least a version of the Vatican. To Constantinople. So Constantinople was part of the of Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire. So theoretically, Rome falls. And then now the, 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 the new center of Christianity does become Constantinople with the, uh, the the Orthodox Church or an Orthodox version of Catholicism. So but but what happens is that this other version of the Orthodox faith comes out of that, not from the Vatican. So it sees itself as a different, for lack of a better term, vestibule or, you know, franchise of the Catholic faith. So even that in and of itself separates them out from the West. And so Peterson is trying to make this connection between religious Orthodoxy and ideology and Kagan goes through the, and, he, and by the way, Kagan is right about this. He's not wrong about it. They see themselves as something different. But what Kagan, let me see if I can find this and where he talks about um, the Bolsheviks. Let me see if I can find this. Throughout the Cold War had denied it. But in addition to that, the NATO accession was also meant to help bring those uh, Warsaw Pact states and then the Baltic. So they're talking about what happens after Russia falls. And he's splitting hairs here in that in 1994, when everything really finally gets sorted out, you have all these Russian satellites that have no allegiance. So, so um, NATO is kind of hands off for a while because they don't want to look like they're greedy. And he's basically saying that you know, NATO wasn't really out to hustle these former, you know, Soviet satellites, these former Soviet states. 
And to some extent, he's right. But NATO is smart, and over time, they will do that. They just don't want to make it look so fucking obvious. And you can always apply for NATO membership. NATO doesn't have to accept you. But in this case, why wouldn't they accept these countries? So let me, let me just go maybe here. Let's see what Peterson talks about. U.S. and its satellites against Russia and its satellites, that's a profound misapprehension of the historical reality because it wasn't Russia and its satellites, it was the Soviet Union, which was a block, and it's America with its allies, so America sits as first among equals, let's Correct. say, something like that, in a voluntary organization that's predicated on the preservation of freedom at the political level and at the economic level. And if we want evidence for that, we look at the the response of the, well the wall in in berlin for example to take not the least of the examples but the crushing of hungary and czechoslovakia and and almost poland when the right. when the soviet union did fall and look at the response to any manifestation of genuine autonomy on the part of the soviets so okay well we still have a question that's that's lurking constantly in the background it's like why why in the world would the rush the russians are prone to reject an invitation to become part of the sovereign voluntary association of western states for some reason they distrust the west we've talked about that they regard themselves as having an autonomous destiny but but the, hypothetically that could have still happened so let let's take a slightly different tack what did let's let's imagine we're trying to figure out what did we do wrong in negotiating with the russians in the last 20 years and what did the russians do wrong in conceptualizing themselves and in negotiating with us so let's start with us maybe like well, we're in this situation well hang on hang on before i mean yep. before we do that there's a okay there's a sea change that happens in russia um when putin takes power because yeltsin had been one thing and then putin is something else entirely and Putin was, had become an anti-communist in the 1990s, and he helped Yeltsin fight off the attempts of the communists to regain power. And initially, I think, by the way, Putin identified himself as a Democrat and, a, and, a, and someone who was in favor of democracy, um, which worked for him as long as he was actually winning elections you know, handily and, and didn't have to rig them. And he didn't have to rig the first few elections um, very much, and he could allow them to be relatively free because he was popular. Okay, so... I'm going to skip that for now. And one of the things that uh, Kagan does talk about, and I'll, I'll revisit this tomorrow uh, with probably the follow-up interview, uh, but he does talk about the Bolshevik revolution. So why don't we, why don't we, I'm going to track that down and let's go back to this tomorrow. So this will be kind of part one of the deconstruction of that interview. And then tomorrow we'll follow up on the follow-up as well. And I'll have all these clips sorted out. I just, I got, I got behind today with the uh, little bit of the uh, technical stuff. Anyway, um, well, why don't we pull the bus into the station here and call it a day. Thanks for being here. Use your head in order to distinguish real, your heart to stay open what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. If you're listening to the podcast, Please join us over at 15minutesofflame.com and jump in and hang out with the chat. And um, in the meantime, take good care of yourself. Bye for now.